Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Back in mid-April, before the mass protests broke out, I wrote an article titled, Get Ready for the Coming Storm. In part, it went... Now, as the country settles into deep depression, conditions for the rise of a broad people's movement might develop. Mass unemployment could spark spontaneous resistance, but without organization, uprisings cannot be sustained and have little direction. I saw this firsthand during the Freddie Gray protests in Baltimore. Will progressives and socialists be ready for it? Well, the storm arrived sooner than I expected. I think if the mass movement that has arisen in the wake of the police murders of George Floyd and many other black men is going to be sustainable and transformative, workers organized in trade unions are going to have to play a leading role. It's almost the only place that workers are organized as workers. Even if their numbers are much smaller than in the past, unionized workers are still in strategic sectors of the economy, including transportation, telecommunications, the public sector, hospitals, and many large industries. An example of what's possible may be set by the West Coast port workers on Friday, Juneteenth. Members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU, plan to close West Coast ports in solidarity with Black Lives Matter on the day commemorating the end of slavery. While many, even on the left, have written off American trade unions as too weak and too conservative, in fact, there are strikes all over the country, and some say a rising militancy. In the book Labor in the Time of Trump, the introduction ends with this. Building corporate lobbies and the right-wing ideology surrounding them is fundamental to capitalism, as is the impulse to generate wealth at the top and eliminate unions. How the labor movement responds, however, is generating fierce debates within the labor movement. The right-wing agenda is at odds with what most people want, and it's up to the labor movement and its allies to expose and counter the contradiction. The challenge for labor and the left is to marshal the forces that believe another world is possible. Now joining us is one of the editors of the book, Claire Hammonds, who is a professor of practice, UMass Amherst Labor Center, where she conducts and supports applied research and the labor education program. Hammonds also currently serves as the Labor Center Graduate Program Director. And one of the contributors to the book in Chicago is Cedric Johnson, who's an associate professor of African-American studies and political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago and editor of the neoliberal deluge, Hurricane Katrina, Late Capitalism and the Remaking of New Orleans. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So, so Claire, in the book's dedication, it talks about laying the groundwork for the next upsurge. Do you think this is it? And if so, can the progressive struggle inside the union movement effectively challenge the conservatives who lead most, not all, of the major unions? Yeah, well, I guess I'll just start by saying a couple of things about that. Um, so this book itself, um, there there's five co-editors on it. Um, so myself and the other three uh, UMass Amherst faculty um, at the Labor Center, uh, Jasmine Kerasi, Eve Weinbaum, and Tim Jurovich. Um, and we were also um, supported in writing that by our sociology colleague, Dan Clausen. Um, and Dan Clausen passed away unexpectedly last May, um, just after we'd finished putting the book together. And um, that 
that introduction there is actually a reference to a book that he wrote um, in the early, I guess in the early 2000s, maybe 2002 or so, um, that's called The Next Upsurge. And it's a really important book. And I, you know, one of the things he really argues in it is that if you look at the history of the labor movement and of union growth, unions have never grown slowly and incrementally. Um, but rather we've seen these large explosions in growth, right? So if we look at the period following uh, the Great Depression and those sort of 10 years or so between 1934 and 1944, um, membership in the labor movement quadrupled during that period. Um, And so, you know, he's pointing out that if we just look at the sort of slow, steady decline of the last several decades, you're given one picture of where the labor movement is headed. Um, But in reality, that, you know, the data suggests that that actually we we might not know when it's coming and it might come in these huge sort of large bursts. Um, And, you know, so just in response then to your question, sort of following up on that about um, sort of whether or not these internal political progressive struggles um, make a difference. You know, I I have two sort of initial thoughts to that. And, you know, my first answer is yes, (laughs) Um, which is to say that unions are democratic organizations run by elected leaders. And as is the case in all types of democratic systems, um, there's, it's often the case that those in power have, are in a position to um, to maintain that power by setting rules in various ways. But that's not to say that um, that there aren't avenues for new kinds of leadership to emerge within that democratic context. And I, I think there's lots of examples from the labor movement, um, you know, even just looking in the last decade, where we've really seen progressive struggles within um unions actually transform them. And, you know, I, I think of the teachers unions often, um, and they've really very much been at the forefront of a lot of these progressive transformations within the labor movement. Um, and part of it is that they're public sector unions that are well positioned to, to make common cause with community organizations. They're often very much embedded in the community, um, in ways that, um, that perhaps advantage them to this kind of struggle, but we've really seen them leading the way. Um, in actually here in Massachusetts, my union, the Massachusetts Teachers Association, um, had a, a real transformation about six years ago, um, a Democratic caucus within the union um, was able to to organize rank-and-file members and elect a new, very progressive Democratic president. Um, and, you know, in that period of time following it, we've seen like a real transformation of the union at the state level, including, you know, an aggressive campaign that pushed back against charter schools in the state and was able to win on that. Um, we won sort of additional changes around the funding formula, which is um, how money gets allocated at the school at, to different schools in a way that really increased funding for public education. Um, and I'd say it's also, you know, this will become increasingly important as um, resources uh, in the public sector become more scarce in the um, in the economic fallout of the COVID pandemic. Um, I guess just one other thing I would say in response 
to your question is that um, outside of the role of, you know, progressive organizing happening within unions and within labor movement, I think it's also really important to to look at the, the broader social movement sort of ecosystem, if you will, um, and sort of considering the interactive effects among these movements. You know, certainly since the beginning of June, we've seen massive protests um, around Black Lives Matter and um, anti-Black racism that I think, you know, have really pushed the labor movement in new ways to urgently confront issues of racism within their membership um, and to think about how it is that they organize in coalition with movements for racial justice. Cedric, uh, to, to what extent do you think this is the next upsurge? And if it is, uh, how how much influence will it have in the unions within and with, and outside the unions, you know, amongst the workers movement? I mean, does this lead to a, a campaign of organizing? Uh, Claire's talking about uh, times when union membership can surge. Uh, well, if there was ever a moment where it was needed, it's now. Uh, but are the is, are the union leaders of most of the unions? And I, I, there are exceptions, but most of the unions are, have not been very good at organizing. And uh, not very good at uh, confronting, especially the leadership of the Democratic Party. Uh, so what, will this be a, a spark that will help push this kind of progressive motion in the unions? I mean, I, I definitely think it's possible, right? Um, you know, the, the pandemic, you know, did a few things for us that I think, um, you know, as Claire pointed out, it sort of jolted people out of their, their uh, typical way of doing things. Um, for one, you know, I'll go down a, f- a few changes that, that I think it helped to, to precipitate, at least in how people think about labor, right? Um, the focus on essential workers and the kinds of conversations I heard people having about this, um, I think because of the, the induced slowdown, right? And, it's, and for some people, it was a slowdown. Some people could, could work from home, you know, uh, people working in certain professions that allowed them that kind of flexibility. And it's not like that was necessarily a good thing. I mean, many people complained loudly that this was more oppressive, right? That now they were they were forced with a different kind of labor discipline that didn't even allow their homes to be a place of, of egress. But now, you know, um, they were at the, the beck and command of their bosses or managers at all times. So even among better situated workers, um, this presented some problems. But I think for all of us as a consumer public, right, we, we realized that there were many occupations which we relied on. And, and in the midst of the pandemic, that became incredibly vivid and clear to us, right? That, you know, whether it was the delivery uh, services that folks were using, uh, grocery stores and uh, the various shipping uh, channels and, and um, transportation that, that connect those to the port system and what have you, we realized that there were certain workers in society that were um, essential for all of us, right? Really uh, fundamental to our basic reproduction on a day-to-day basis, who also were underpaid, not protected, not provided with um, adequate uh, personal protective equipment in the midst of a pandemic. And, you know, what was great about the uh, that moment of, of um, shelter in place is you saw, you know, companies like, like Amazon um, openly criticized, right? Even in mainstream media, 
and, you know, workers staging, you know, sick outs and, and um, walkouts, right? And then Amazon retaliating almost in, you know, 19th century fashion by firing those persons who were, were, uh, were organizing. And then also rebellion even from, you know, more privileged stratum within Amazon. I saw where one engineer resigned and condemned Amazon for basically firing whistleblowers uh, within its ranks. And so I think, you know, the, the focus on essential workers, whether those were uh, frontline emergency and healthcare workers, but also people whose services and labor we rely on, on a day-to-day basis, right. And maybe take for granted, you know, I think people finally begin to pay attention to those, those, uh, those experiences in the same ways that, you know, the shelter in place also allowed, you know, the, the killing of, um, Ahmaud Aubrey and also um, George Floyd to resonate in ways that it might it might not have before when those stories would have competed with all sorts of other uh, news stories or distractions that Americans are typically caught up in. So I think the shelter in place and the focus on essential workers really has helped us and it's it set the stage for something else, right? I mean, I think it's possible that um, we will see. Um, a wave of, of labor organizing if things continue to go this way. And what's helping it in part is having a, you know, Republican uh, controlled Senate and a, a white house, which is, doesn't give a damn about these people. Right. And, and, and responded with one of the most, um, you know, uh, tokenizing measures. I mean, a, a really a pittance for the most part in terms of relief, for people who are enduring, um, you know, this pandemic and, and not, not allowed to work. Right. So I think the, um, the various conditions of the pandemic have created an opening for us, but I think, you know, again, the work lies ahead, you know, it's not gonna, it's not going to happen just because of outrage, but it's gonna, it's going to happen because of the tireless work. The other thing, and I'll just, I'll kind of close with this part. Um, in my own, you know, I, you know, mine and Claire's own profession, right? As as uh, as academics, right? I mean, I think we've all seen, or at least heard, various for-profit uh, ed entrepreneurs seize this moment, right? And they, and as in other crises, right? They they're looking for the opportunity to transform higher education. I mean, some of it is is they're overselling it, right? I mean, I don't think we're going to see a complete. Uh, total overhaul, but where where they can succeed to erode the power of unionized faculty, move uh, courses towards online education, get rid of entire layers of um, non-unionized or contingent faculty. I think we're going to see that right in, in some places. So I think I think that the the stage is being set for important struggles ahead, but. We've got to be, um, you know, we've got to be prepared to do the work. Uh, Claire, usually at times like this, especially given the election, uh, the significance of the November election with Trump and, of course, people in the union movement want Trump defeated. But so often with these rises of the mass movement, especially around elections, the, the, the most of the union leadership are so preoccupied and focused on funding uh, the Democratic Party and getting people out organizing for the Democratic Party that they don't organize 
first of all, the unions themselves in terms of getting new members. And then especially at a time like this, if there was ever a time that unions need to organize the unemployed and to create that as a real force, as it was in the 1930s, you know, that time is now. But I think that goes to the same question of the struggle within the unions. Like, are the unions there, you know, to represent workers as a whole, as a class, and get away from this much more narrow vision of what unions are? And, you know, the UAW always, the you know, care, had such a good health care plan. The UAW didn't care much about Medicare for all. Um, of course, now none of those big unions are in good shape. Uh, so is is there is there a time now where the, where the unions can start playing more of that kind of class role? I think there is. I mean, and what you've pointed to is, I I guess the the sort of huge explosion in unemployment. Um, and you know, I think certainly history has important lessons for us. And you know, the the period sort of in the New Deal era in which the labor movement was successful in pushing forward pro-worker policies. There was a substantial amount of labor unrest and organizing that include coalitions of both employed and unemployed workers. Um, you know, I think the question of where unemployment will land is still an open one. Um, and, you know, and I guess, you know, I, in some ways that feels like a, um, it feels like there's such immediate work that needs to be done by the labor movement in terms of both internal organizing and um, trying to work with, and as you've pointed out, and, and Cedric pointed out as well, like we've seen this sort of massive unrest um, happening among unorganized workers, right? So we're talking about Amazon workers, um, we're talking about workers um, in the gig economy, and that since the since the start of the pandemic, you know, those numbers of wildcat strikes have, have really been significant. And one of the questions I think is, you know, how the labor movement is able to grapple with the fact that so much of this organizing is happening outside of the union context, right? Um, and what does it do with that? And how is it that we then take that organizing that's happening and transform it into, um, sort of sustained organization um, that can be able to to make real change. Um, you know, and and I would just sort of also point to the fact that you know we have seen these increases in labor unrest happening um, happening recently since the pandemic began. Um, and we've seen other sorts of protest movements happening. Um, but you know there has been a certain amount of um, this isn't exactly brand new. If we look even just in the last several years, um, you know, more workers went on strike in 2018 than in any time since 1986. Um, and so we are sort of starting to see this uptick in worker unrest, and perhaps this is a culmination of it. But I think from the, you know, in terms of the or organizing that the labor movement has to do, I mean, it, it is a class-based movement and an economic-based movement, and that's at the heart of it. And, you know, building common cause with community members and other sorts of um, issues that affect workers in um, in their communities, whether it be around housing, whether it be around race, and whether it be around policing, um, environmental issues, schooling, et cetera, like those are all places which are, where I think the, the labor movement can be um, be organizing in coalition. In, in the introduction to the book, 
uh, Cedric, there's this uh, suggestion that there's a debate in the union movement about how to respond to the current situation. What are, what is the debate? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are many different um, different kinds of debates. I mean, I think um, you know, if 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 the if we think about that part of the, the book is speaking to the current moment, you know, and and the uh, you know the wave of unprecedented protests we've seen, you know, uh, around the country. I think there's a way to to not only for unions to become involved in terms of resources, right, and uh, connecting with social struggles, and some of them are already doing that, you know, in different parts of the country. I know when I participated in protests against the the uh, killing of Laquan McDonald here in Chicago, which those those protests kind of took off in 2015, even though he was killed a year before, there were unions that were out there, right? And I mean, I think, you know, I think maybe one way to, to think about it is, you know, the people who are being heavily policed are workers, working class people, right? And, and there are many moments where we see um, those who are, are unionized. If we think about people like uh, Philando Castile, you know, who was a um, cafeteria worker and I think was also a, a member of a Teamsters local in St. Paul or somebody like a George Floyd who had been a truck driver and was was, uh, you know, was unemployed as a as a bouncer. I mean, all of these folks are, are part of the working class. Right. So I think the first step, you know, maybe in, in getting past those debates is to, to concede that these are, are working class people. Right. Um, I remember there's a great passage from uh Michael Schweig, where he, he talks about the poor and basically tries to take back this discussion of class from decades of liberalism, which tries to parse out or separate the, the poor and the dependent from workers, right? And I think he, he basically says that, you know, who are the poor but, but ruined workers, right? They're people who have been um, ground up and cast aside by this particular economy. I think we have to think about it in the same way. So I don't, I don't see those divides as being as sharp uh, between those persons who are actively organizing in their workplaces and the people beyond the, uh, the shop floor, so to speak. Uh, I just think we have, to, we have to, one, step into this with the idea that, that most Americans are still working class. Um, even if our salaries may vary widely, our consumer capacity may vary widely, but ultimately, most of us rely upon um, a wage in order to survive, right? We don't own, um, you know, vast tracts of, of land. We don't own central city real estate. And so the way we reproduce ourselves is through uh, selling our labor power. And if we get back to that kind of basic idea, um, I think it moves the conversation in a different direction. And so it makes sense that unions throw themselves fully behind um any policing measures which are meted out against, you know, policing is meted out against the, the most vulnerable uh, segments of the working class. But supporting measures to restrain policing is not such a tough one for the unions. But with this coming election, and right now it looks like Biden's going to be president, uh, I think the bigger question is going to be whether the unions are willing to force the Democratic Party to actually into some serious reforms, not nibbling around the edges uh, in, as the Obama administration did. I mean, the Obama administration, one of their big reasons Obama got elected was the, this big promise to the union movement that they would pass the, uh, I forget the name of the legislation right now, but it was a, a piece of legislation to make it easier for unions to organize. And they never passed the legislation after making all kinds of promises. 
the uh, as I say, this goes back to this issue of the fight within the unions, where there's a real progressive unions. Like how many of the major unions supported Sanders? I don't think the majority did. Uh, most either didn't do anything or they supported Biden. There are, of course, the nurses, communication workers that did support Sanders. And a lot of locals supported Sanders in some, and sometimes in defiance of their national leadership. Is I guess the same question again. There's a kind of change in, in attitudes happening right now. This, is a, this pandemic has been a big dose of reality. Um, do you get a feel for that in the unions, there will be like, Claire was talking about a progressive slate got elected in her union. You know, might this be happening more across the country? Do you see any evidence of it or maybe it's too soon to say? I think when I see that, that the major unions supported Biden is disheartening, you know, when the, the, the uh, national organization supported him. But I mean, I think that the Sanders campaign, you know, was was terribly important. I think it um, reminded us all that it was possible to run a progressive left, you know, campaign at the national level, right? And that it was possible to win in some places with a candidacy, which wasn't a shame to talk about what kind of world we want, like what kind of society do we want? And and that was uplifting, right? Even using the term uh, socialist, right, openly, and the fact that he wasn't he wasn't capsized as a candidate because of his long commitment to uh, democratic socialism. That was an achievement. Um, at the same time, I mean, you know, if you live in certain parts of the country, it doesn't resonate in the same ways. You know, if, if you live, I mean, I grew up in Louisiana, you know, I have a lot of family still in the South. And in some of these places, the discussions are very different, right? You don't have these massive teacher strikes like we have here in Chicago. You may not even have any any unions for the most part, right, that are, that are worth, worth talking about. So in these in these uh, right to work states and states where you have Republicans, you know, oftentimes in, in the in the uh, governor's mansion and, and in control of the state legislature. Voting for somebody like Sanders seems like a long shot. Right. Um, and it's and it's just based on on the reality on the ground. So I can imagine why, you know, black voters in South Carolina, not even imagine. I know why they voted for Biden It's because he seemed like the person who could possibly get elected. And they've lived through too many, especially if there's somebody who's who's a, an older uh, black person in South Carolina. They've lived through too many heartbreaking disappointments as far as elections to to place their their bets on Sanders, who didn't have the blessing of the local politicians, right, who they trust and who do deliver some sort of uh, material or divisible benefits to them on a regular basis. So I think I think we will probably see more election of of progressive candidates in local uh, places where that's, that's possible. We will see changes as far as like union leadership. Um, I can imagine more in the way of, you know, diversification of union leadership, you know, going forward, given everything that's happened over the last few weeks. But um, I'm not I'm not completely disappointed with with the possibility of a Biden election. Right. And I, I, I've said this in a few places. I think that we have to have a long, a long game approach to this. Right. That, you know, Biden is better than than Trump. I think on some issues, he, he if he if he changes the composition of the the Congress at all, it puts us in a better position to push for things. I mean, just look at the damage that Trump has wrought as far as his appointments to different departments. I mean, Ben Carson is not the kind of person I want to see in charge of, of uh, 
of, of um, housing and urban development, right? We need other kinds of, of people in place. And sure, we can go by the track record of the, the uh, centrist Democrats, which is also disappointing, but I think we'd, we'd be in a better place um, with somebody like, like a Biden. And given the energy that's been unleashed by um, you know, the pandemic, we might be in a better place to push for some different kinds of things than even what we saw during the Obama administration. Claire, you're right in that introduction that the right wing agenda is at the at odds with what most people want, and the labor movement has to try to deal with this. Um, how, to what extent is that happening? We know that a lot of union members in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania uh, voted for Trump. Um, are the unions responding to this, and, and why do you think so many union members voted? You know. It's pretty obvious against their own interests, but they got fooled. Well, I guess there's, you know, two things, which is um, first this uh, this point that the right wing agenda is really unpopular. Um, I think it's worth separating out that agenda, perhaps from the Republican Party um, and sort of all that that entails. I think there's sort of two things happening there. Because on its basis, when you're asking people these sort of questions about like, do you want to have a good school in your neighborhood? Do you want to have affordable housing? Do you want to have a job? Like these sorts of basic things. Um, the Republican agenda, you know, is not very popular, right? It turns out people do really want to have access to health care that doesn't bankrupt them when they get sick, for example, right? So like on these issues... We see that that people do um, generally support more liberal policies, and this is why I think in a lot of places um, you see things trying, you know, people sort of moving outside of um, the legislative process to actually trying to pass um, valid initiatives and sort of going directly to the people and putting it putting things forward as a question, right? Because you're sometimes able to get more progressive policies through doing that than you are. Um, working, you know, actually uh, through the election process. Um, on this question about why do so many union voters vote for Trump? Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of things happening there. Um, one, I think this question of union membership um you know, a lot of people are union members. You don't identify as union members. Um, unions have moved to a place of oftentimes being essentially like an insurance policy for workers, right? You're, you know, you pay the union so that you have, you know, some sort of benefits in case you have a problem at your job. You pay the union to help make sure that you get a better health care plan or a wage increase. Um, and unions haven't necessarily... Um, you know, been doing the kind of political education work um, that would help union members to to see their broader class interests and to to vote in different terms. I've gone into unionized grocery stores, and I've asked, "What's the name of your union?" And union members working at the cash can't tell me the name of their union. I said, "Do you know who your steward is?" 
And on several occasions, they have no idea even who their union rep is. Uh, the, the level of education in some of the unions is just terrible. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, so I think it's hard to like, I mean, if these people are, are sort of don't know who their steward is, don't know who their union is. Yes, they might pay union dues, but um, but that's you know, a different kind of membership, right? It's in a different kind of organization. So I think at a more fundamental level, what you're talking about is actually sort of transforming union organizations so that they are, um, you know, engaging with their membership and doing the kind of political education work that would allow for the development of a class consciousness that, um, that would change some of these voting outcomes. Is there any organization, and if there isn't, it sure seems to me there should be, that is there to help progressive workers who want to fight in their unions, you know, to get elected, to develop slates, to, uh, because I would guess in a lot of unionized places, some of the workers feel very isolated and they have no idea what to do. And the second thing is unorganized workers where, you know, as I say, some unions do organize, but a lot do very little. And I, I've talked to quite a few workers. Sometimes they've reached out to me because, you know, they watch the, the news I do. And they said, well, I'm unorganized, but I don't, know, I don't know what to do about it. There needs, does there need to be a different kind of workers organization outside of the traditional union structure that can talk to both progressives in traditional unions and to workers who want to get organized? Cedric, is, is there something like that or should there be? Uh, well, I mean, ideally, right, I wish we had a, a, a political party that was actually representing the, the interests of, of um, working people. You know, that would be great. <laughs> that would be a place to start. Uh, in the meantime, I think I mean, maybe, maybe one way to accomplish it, right, would be um, the place of the campaign. I don't mean the electoral campaign, but the, the activist campaign, which could be, you know, and, and oftentimes are uh, led by unions, but, but other kinds of, of, uh, campaigns that we've seen, you know, and some of those have intensified during the, uh, the pandemic that are still class inflected, even if they aren't necessarily formal worker organizations. Right. So, and I'm thinking here of, of, um, you know, we could talk about black lives matter, right. And since there are some redistributive, uh, questions that are raised within that, um, you know, any eviction campaigns in different cities, people calling for moratoriums on, on, uh, evictions during the pandemic, but a lot of that work was being done before. And even, you know, going back as far as, as the, uh, the, uh, subprime mortgage crisis, right. We've had, we've seen a, um, expansion of, of housing activism, especially within cities where it's no longer affordable, for working people to live. Uh, so I think there's ways that these campaigns can serve as a, as a bridge, but also a, a space where union activists can connect as you, you know, as you alluded to at the very beginning with the unemployed, with people who are um, living on public assistance, with people who may be in the gig economy, right. As a way to begin to, to, uh, to connect. I mean, this is a much smaller scale example I'll give you. Um, before passing the, the uh, baton to Claire. But when I lived in Rochester, we had a pretty robust uh, labor education outfit going on. And the, the main people who were in charge of that, Linda Donahue and John Garlock, were people I learned a lot from about 
how to organize events that connected with um, the general public, you know, sort of working class public in, in Rochester. And it was through, you know, monthly discussions, through uh, uh, labor tours, through uh, factory visits for you know, things I did with students, but also through through um, even a film series, right, which which snagged a certain, you know, a certain group of folks who were interested in that thing. But I think we have to be engaged in that kind of work as well, right? Like not not simply approaching working class people and different constituencies in the midst of a crisis, but slowly starting to build a kind of, of class consciousness and really an anti-capitalist politics, right, um, that we need. But that's going to take time. But I just think that there's other ways besides the, the collective bargaining process and, you know, actual shop organizing that we could use to connect with people. Uh, Claire, uh, we're nearing the end. Same question to you. Are there forms of organizing coming into being? Uh, and and sh- if not, or should there be more that kind of work both within the normal union sector, union form, but also can help unorganized workers get organized, and I should say help organize the unemployed as well. Uh, are there these kinds of uh, non-traditional union forms? Yes, there. Are, I mean, there's, I guess, two, I'm trying to think of a setting in which that happens in the same organization. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of non-traditional union forms, you know, in the last 20 years, a lot of the organizing of, of low wage, particularly undocumented workers has happened outside of the union context, um, particularly in worker centers. Um, and, you know, this has meant that if, you know, if you don't have a union, you're not able to collectively bargain a contract. Um, but oftentimes these organizations um, have been able to organize people to win, um, you know, either win gains from their employer, um, although short of a contract, um, or also, you know, push for um, legislative changes at a local or state level. Um, and I'm thinking particularly here about, you know, a lot of worker centers um, have been doing organizing work around wage theft. Um, and this is a particular issue for low wage workers um, and have been able to pass um, ordinances that help protect workers um, from losing wages. So this isn't, you know, forming a union, um, but it is another type of an organization that allows people to come together and you know, fight for their rights on the job. Yeah. I, you know, and I would just say, you know, within the labor movement, I, I think that Labor Notes, um, which is a, a sort of network that's, uh, you know, a magazine as well as a conference and sort of ongoing workshops, has really been a central site for bringing together rank and file workers who are interested in bringing about change within their union and bringing about democratic change within their union. Um, and certainly, you know, since the 80s, has done a lot of training and work with um, union members who are looking to create progressive change within their union. Uh, Cedric, just finally, um, a a lot, perhaps maybe most of the people in the streets are workers, young workers, uh, unionized, probably most of them are a lot of them not unionized. their consciousness now, their focus is very much on the question of systemic racism and police brutality and dealing with, with the police. Um, but they're workers. Uh, what, what, what 
do you say to them about in terms of what they should be thinking about doing? I mean, what I would hope is that, you know, some of these these protests uh, would give way to to, um, you know, maybe more forceful redistributive um, politics, right? Different kinds of discussions about how we should organize uh, the economy or even distribute, you know, public goods within metropolitan contexts, right? Uh, and some of that's already happening. What I'm, what I'm maybe most afraid of is that while all of my activist friends really see um, possibility, right? They see, you know, this morphing into some reckoning as far as uh, America's history of, of, uh, of racism goes. The way, what I'm also hearing at the same time, you know, from family members, uh, friends, people I've been connected to through different institutions, schools I went to, uh, I'm hearing something that's much more conservative, right? It's really just a a demand that that um, America become a, a less racist place, right? And we hear all the old cliches of earlier periods about leveling the playing field, right? And providing um, blacks and, and all other people with an equal shot at living uh, the American dream as it's already been presented to us, right? Which is, you know, expanded consumer capacity and, uh, not necessarily. I'm not always hearing with some of these conversations the kind of criticism I hear from activists, right? So I wonder if there's multiple things happening here at once and that it could possibly go in a fairly conservative place. Um, you know, it's almost the same spirit. Sometimes it feels the same as how people talked about the election of Barack Obama, that this was a new day because it, it ripped the... the uh, glass ceiling off of, of um, public office, right, where we were finally able to see a black family in the White House. But I wonder if that's, for some people, that's enough, right? That kind of, of symbolic reckoning, whether it's taking down monuments, changing the names of streets, um, pulling films or products that people see as a, as a relic of earlier periods, like that may be the extent of it for some folks, right? Maybe in some cities we'll see more substantial uh, changes, but I'm worried that the the liberal dimension is more powerful than we think in this contemporary upsurge, right? So once we get beyond the activists, um, people are just asking to to have a fair shot at the game as it already exists. So it would be great if we could see convergence between the kinds of uh, wildcat strikes that that um, Claire mentioned earlier, people organizing in the gig economy, and the outrage that people felt about um, George Floyd's death and and uh, the general treatment of of uh, you know blacks by police. But I just wonder, right? You know, I don't want to I don't want to get too too. Um, excited because we've seen elements of this play out before and it hasn't always yielded the things that we that we imagine and hope for all right thanks very much claire thank you cedric thank you thanks and thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast